maybe that's all that's keeping society from falling apart. All these bullshit. Welcome to a brand new episode of the McFuture Podcast. I'm Steve Factor, and today I have a fun little set of rants that I recorded right before the holiday. These are all on the theme of business and especially corporate. First, I'm going to talk about 20 articles that never need to be written ever again. I'm also going to talk about analysis paralysis, which is something I'm sure anyone who's worked in a corporation has experienced and has driven them up a wall. And I'm going to rant about human resources and that entire administrative layer that is now destroying a lot of companies. And I'm going to tell you about a love story that will touch your heart and only your heart because I don't want to get me too'd. Anyway, let's jump into this episode. But before you dive in, please go to Patreon. And support the show, patreon.com forward slash McFuture, where there will be a brand new episode on crypto, all the great crypto rants in one place. Also, please give the show five stars on iTunes. It really helps with visibility. I always forget to remind people. And you can subscribe and watch these episodes on YouTube as well. So the links will be in the show notes. Anyway, this is the last of these short rant episodes. The next episode will continue my series on the future of relationships, and it will be all about trust. You will not want to miss it. And if you want to support the show, please go to patreon.com forward slash McFuture and show me you love me. Show me, love me, show me, love me. I I don't know. Is that a song or I just make that up? Either way, I will not ever sing again if you donate to the Patreon. Anyway, enjoy the show. I have been seeing so many ridiculous articles over and over. It kind of reminds me of um, when I did a lot of speaking at conferences. At some point, it just became Groundhog's Day. I would go up there and talk about innovation. And I would go back like three, four, five years later. And I was on to something new or three new things from there. But everyone else was still sort of regurgitating the same exact stuff. And I'm like... I I can't do this anymore. I was annoyed because this old thing that I had been marinating in for a decade or more is now new to someone else and I have to tolerate them learning it and I wasn't tolerating it. Now I'm going to do a countdown. I've got 20 articles that never need to be written ever, ever again. So I'm counting down. Number 20. Are you ready for digital transformation? There was one recently from Harvard Business Review. Listen, if your organization or you or whoever is not ready for digital transformation, you need to go. You're either too old, too stupid, or completely unaware of the world around you. If your organization is not gone digital, you're also going out of business. And if you're in that industry and you're worried about your job, go figure out how to connect a computer or how to work an iPad. Number 19, why we should all eat bugs. This is part of an ongoing campaign, just like De Beers did with diamonds to convince us to eat bugs because actual food that we want to eat is going to be too expensive. And eventually our kids are going to be like, 
This is amazing. This is the best cricket I've ever had. This is the spicy, oh, delicious. That's happening soon. Number 18, why things will never be the same after COVID. Yeah, we get it. And most of the predictions during COVID were incorrect because the worst time to make predictions is in the midst of a crisis, in the most panicked moments and situations. That's not how the world is eventually going to work. And some things will stay like remote healthcare and delivery services and shopping online, mobile payments, but people are going to go back to the office. People are going to travel. People are going to start doing things in real life. They're not going to sit connected to, to Zuckerverse. Number 17, the pros and cons of working from home. We've seen every work from home argument already. Enough. We get it. We're sitting at home. We're in our underwear. We know. We know the pros and cons. You know, the dog is barking. There's a conference call and we only have half our clothing on. Number 16, why I'm detoxing with a flip phone. This is very popular, especially on YouTube, where there's just some guy, he's like, I came up with this great idea. I am going to simplify my life and see what it's like and film it. And all these people with real phones are going to follow me around and videotape me as I struggle with this piece of crap. And then I'll ask them, hey, can you call the Uber with your amazing, terrific, spectacular phone while I stand here and pretend to be interested in this piece of trash from the 1990s? Number 15, why I switched to or from an iPhone or an Android. That's another one that's super popular. I think Business Insider is one of the worst offenders. They, they hire a new crop of teeny bopper kids, you know, fresh out of college, and they like, oh, I have an idea. I'm like, really? Do you have a second idea to Google to see how many times you've done this before? And each new phone gives like a new wrinkle to it. It's like, yeah, this one has three cameras on the back. Who cares? Stupid. It's a dumb article. I don't want to see it again. Number 14. Okay. 10 stocks to invest in right now. I bet you someone did this study. If someone had put their money into Kiplinger's and Barron's and followed all of their advice, and then someone else spent none of that time and you calculated their savings on the subscription and the time they didn't waste because they just put their money on a diversified mutual fund. I bet you the people who did that not only outperformed financially, they have saved tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars just by not wasting time on those publications. Number 13. Celebrity X's opinion on anything outside their profession. Oh, what Julia Louis-Dreyfus thinks about COVID. What Scarlett Johansson thinks about Israel. I don't care. I don't care what Scarlett Johansson thinks about Israel. I, I might not even care what most Israelis think about Israel. There's probably a few uh, who are really smart who I trust. But it doesn't matter what Jimmy Kimmel thinks. These, these are not great minds. These are people who wanted cameras pointed on them. Unlike me, who says important things into what appears to be a camera. Number 12. Anything Trump besides policy. Still, they're milking Trump. He's not president anymore. I saw the other day a clip from SNL and they still got a guy doing Trump impressions. I'm like, dude, this thing's over. It's done. He was great for ratings. So they're, they're still trying to milk a dead horse. Or there's probably a better metaphor there. Yeah, you had the crazy orange kleptocrat and now you've got the demented old man who's shitting his pants. Surely there's a joke there somewhere. Gather your best comedic minds and try to figure one out. Number 11, 
anything conservative slash liberal pundit said. Who cares? Who cares that they're pundits? Their job is to get attention. I don't know how many times I see, you know, Ben Shapiro trending on Twitter. Same thing with Candace Owens. They say crazy stuff and then you report on it, make articles out of it and make them more famous. It is a media industrial complex and you're participating in it. Number 10, inequality, bad. Did you know that the top 10 people on the Upper East Side have more Fiji water bottles than all of the people in the rest of Manhattan? Yeah, we know. They're rich. I saw them in a Mercedes, in a yacht, on a helicopter, in a private jet on Instagram. I get it. People have more money. Now, how is this useful other than motivating people to hate the rich? Well, how is it constructive to help you be successful, be happy with your life, or happy enough to never read one of these stupid articles? Number nine, how much Jeff Bezos is worth today? I know yesterday he was worth almost $700 billion. Today, $707 billion. That's right. Very important information. Not important at all. Number... Eight, anything about Will and Jada Pinkett's marriage. Now, it's not Will Smith anymore. It's Will Jada Pinkett because this man has been completely emasculated. I didn't even realize there's a whole show built around emasculating Will Smith. His wife in this, I guess it's called Red Table Talks, all she does is talk about how they have an open marriage and how she's sleeping with all these rappers and he has to go, yeah, I met him. He's just kind of a nice guy. I'm like, this guy played Muhammad Ali? This guy who was like an action star from my childhood? That guy is going to be humiliated constantly on every episode by, by his wife? Stop, please stop. Don't say anything else. I, I I want to picture him as the action hero from my youth, not this guy who's been cuckolded. Number seven, work-life balance. We could Google it. We get it. Everyone wants it. Number six, anything about imposter syndrome. There's a Wikipedia entry. We know some people don't feel like they deserve their success. I, on the other hand, feel like I deserve every morsel of success. Please give it to me because I will never let you down by feeling like, like an imposter. Number five, millennials are killing industry X. Yes, millennials have different tastes. They don't want to shop at The Gap. <laughs> they don't want to wear khakis. They want something different that's their own. And guess what? Their kids are going to want something else. They're not going to want H&M or the, you know, their, or Zara, fast fashion. Every generation is going to change. Some companies are going to keep up, keep up. Some are going to go out of business. And yes, not everyone's going to love kale forever. That may be a passing trend. When we're all eating bugs in the future, then, you know, the bug industry will take over for the burger industry. Number four, any name dropping of Steve Jobs. The man has been dead for quite a while. Still, eight qualities Steve Jobs thinks visionaries should have or great leaders should have. No, no, he's dead. Him and Trump are gone. Now you're on your own. You got to create something useful on your own. Number three. X things that great leaders do. First of all, none of these people who are blogging about this have ever met any of the people they're writing about. It's like whether it's, you know, lessons from Jack Welch or Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. There's been a lot of those recently. 
you don't know them. And yeah, what you see from a public perspective is that tip of the iceberg. You don't see the rest of the iceberg and how this thing got built and created. It's this superficial garbage. I don't even know who consumes it. Was it Inc. or, or uh, Entrepreneur? They are known for all these cheap listicles. You feel dirty. I feel like a hooker after being with a John. Like the water can't possibly get hot enough to wash off the filth. Ugh. Number two. How to get to inbox zero. Listen, I don't give a crap about your inbox. If you're not getting to the emails that matter, you will be fired. That is the checks and balances. That is your article. And then at your next job, you will have so much accumulated wisdom, you'll be able to write an article about how to manage your inbox. Number one, how or why to say yes or no to meetings. There's so many conflicting pieces of advice. It's like, I agree to everything. You never know what opportunity comes up. Another one person is like, you got to say no to everything. You got to, you got to value your time. Time is precious. It's the only thing you have. So these schizophrenic psychotics are just sending these conflicting messages at us. Stop. We'll figure it out. If someone contacts us and it's a good opportunity, we'll figure it out. No need for the article, please. There's this idea that intelligence correlates to success. It does not. I did an entire article, I don't think I did it as a podcast, called uh, The Reason You're Smart But Not Rich, The Kardashian Success Secret. A lot of the smartest people are also not the most confident. They suffer from something called analysis paralysis because intelligence is crippling. It demands evidence, analysis, and validation, and debate, and testing, and consensus, and risk mitigation, and refinement. They crave certainty, which a lot of times isn't even available to you. And the smarter you are, the likelier you are to have this need for validation. The people who work for startups aren't necessarily the smartest people. They ship and they're okay shipping half-baked stuff. And that's a rare breed. It's just a different kind of DNA. The MBAs that I see going into corporate, everything's like a group project to them. They're like, oh, okay, we're, we're gonna sit down, we're gonna meet on Thursday, we're gonna put this on the calendar. And these other guys are like, I'm gonna code till, till two in the morning, and then we're gonna try to launch this at, at 7 a.m. And it's very, very different. Corporate is kind of an extension of school. All these MBAs and super smart people just go from trying to get a teacher's approval and validation to trying to get their bosses or executive approval and validation. High intelligence is not entrepreneurial, nor is it a path to differential success. You're not going to be some amazing breakout success just because you're smart. And there's such a thing as too smart. Uh, there's a lawsuit, I think it was the early 2000s, where a guy scored really high on a police exam to get into the police department. The department said, we can't take you because you scored too high. Your IQ is too high. And he's like, oh, that sounds really discriminatory and I'm gonna sue you. The guy lost the suit. The reason he lost the suit and the judge upheld the police rule, if you give someone who's too smart a gun and authority, they're gonna abuse it. Because you're not busy most of the time. Most of the time you're on the beat, you're walking around, you're talking to people. You have lots of time to think, lots of time to plot, and you have a way of enforcing it that no one else has. So it becomes this really dangerous combination of free time, smarts, a gun, and authority. 
police have to score within a certain range of intelligence in order to qualify for the department, just like there are other criteria in terms of strength, in terms of whatever. It's the same thing for entrepreneurship. You have to be in that sweet spot before you get paralyzed by your own need to validate everything and to overanalyze it. So Mark Crowley, uh, who's an HR guy that um, I'm connected to on Twitter, he posted, to monitor work from home employee productivity, some organizations now use surveillance software that traces how long it takes people to respond to email, takes periodic screenshots of employee computers, and randomly takes photos of employees through their webcams to make sure that they're at their desk. And then another uh, guy, Drew Harwell, uh, tweeted, I talked with 27 attorneys whose work from home is monitored by facial recognition software that analyzes their identity and productivity for eight to 10 hours a day. They feel like, quote, robots, gargoyles, and criminals, and worry the rest of us might be next. Companies that need to monitor people or feel that they need to monitor people at this level of granularity, they need to fire every single recruiter at that company because they hired all the wrong people. Then they need to fire all of the managers for not knowing how to manage or motivate people or set targets so they know who's productive and who isn't. And third, they need to fire all of the executives for approving this bullshit and creating this environment of distrust and discouragement that no employee wants. And they will go and seek out other companies, other careers, just so they don't have to put up with it, especially in high earning professions. Attorneys, you're going to monitor attorneys this way with facial recognition. You are a horrible executive, a horrible company, and you need to jump into traffic. I mean, not fast moving traffic, just enough to break a leg, just so you know what it feels like to be an imbecile who deserves to be punished. I've observed this in corporations, and especially now with all of these, let's call them appeasement departments, because they're not really diversity departments. They don't really care about certain types of diversity. They really care about appeasement and tokenism. So they don't have to change much about what they do. What I've realized is companies that have powerful HR departments are hiding weak leadership. Leaders should be deciding the kind of people they want working for them and the characteristics they want and where they want to take the company. Not HR people. HR people, you know, there's some good ones, but a lot of them don't even fully deeply understand some of these businesses, especially the more technical ones. So they become sort of like this inefficient Google where all they're doing is just keyword comparisons between someone's resume and what the job description says. And they're like, well, this person did this before at this company, so therefore they'll do this again at, at our company. HR in a lot of companies is just a risk management mechanism. And it's a devious one at that because their whole job is to pretend to be interested in your career and your future, but only to the extent that it serves the interest of the corporation. And if something goes wrong, they're full force protecting the interests of the corporation. All that lovey-doveyness about your career development goes straight out the window. And I have got stories I could tell you, which maybe someday I will, or I'll disguise them in some other mechanism. They did a survey of academics, and they asked them why they remain in academia. 10% said that their work is useful. 65% said either 
I have no other skills or my skills were expensive, which basically means the, a sunk cost fallacy. Like they've already spent so much time earning that degree, earning that reputation, getting that job that they're stuck. I would say this applies to a lot of people in a lot of careers, especially as they get deeper into the career and teaching, especially it's not inherently output oriented. There's no product at the end of the day. Not that there is for podcasts or whatever. I guess you could argue this is a version of teaching or entertaining, which is even worse. <laughs> I think a lot of people feel this way. It's very hard to make a job feel useful, especially if there's no end product, you know, there's no one that now has shelter or food or something tangible. And as we live in this intangible world, it's very hard to create that satisfaction. I guess, look, you could work for the cable company on the surface, not the most satisfying thing, but you close your eyes and you imagine someone somewhere sitting there watching Netflix or Pornhub or whatever it is that they're getting on your broadband uh, signal and enjoying their life or wasting, wasting it away in a way that suits them. I think it's just a sign of where we are with jobs and careers. So even our most educated are feeling kind of stuck. A very prominent Yale law professor spoke of the tension between real professors and administrators who now outnumber faculty at Yale. And someone else tweeted this at me, told me that there's now more administrators than students. It's, it's more than a one-to-one -one ratio at Yale and some of these other schools. Really, the same thing applies to corporate HR and middle management. When the useless outnumber the useful, politics start to seep in and bureaucracy seeps in and talented people escape. They go somewhere else and they're replaced by other dead weight because talented people, they just want to do their work. They want to be creative. They want to be unencumbered. They want to feel like they're making progress. They don't want to be in political meetings. They don't want to be making PowerPoints all day. They don't want to be just mired in BS. So over time, things grind to a halt. And this happens in a lot of tech companies. You see that like Yahoo was a great example because, you know, it was this up and coming company and all these like hotshot developers and people wanted to work for it because they were doing exciting things. But eventually, as it became this old stodgy company and just started letting itself go, had no vision, all those people left. They went to other places and you saw the rot in all their products. Even when, uh, I forget the name of uh, the CEO from Google, she took over. She wasn't able to rescue. It was too late. It was a company that was already kind of starved for talent and mining the depths of the past. Universities are kind of a microcosm of the lack of real work. A lot of this corporate work is BS. It's like departments talking to each other internally rather than people who actually make the product or support the product or sell the product. Maybe administrative jobs it's just a jobs program. So all of this inefficiency at companies, not that they set out to do this, but it's kind of how things end up because you get bloated as a large corporation and you get all these different departments and you have all this internal stuff and these internal meetings. And eventually it's very hard to extract all of the uselessness out of the organization. And some of it is baked not into specific jobs, but into tasks people do. So it makes it that much harder because you don't know how much time people are just spending on writing worthless emails or making PowerPoint. Maybe that's all that's keeping society from falling apart, all these bullshit middleware jobs. Chris Saka, who's a pretty famous investor, who uh, he's been on Shark Tank as a guest shark, uh, he posted a question. He asked, why is it so hard for almost every U.S. company to hire right now?
And this is the answer I came up with, at least from the white collar perspective, office jobs. Most office work is hollow and unsatisfying. I did a whole piece on that called uh, happiness uh, will not be downloaded. So work at home really exposed that reality to a lot of people. It's not how a lot of people want to spend their days, you know, commuting to the office, sitting there, you know, office politics, pretending like they're awake, you know, the or not downloading porn. So one solution I think we're going to have to embrace as businesses and as a society and how we make policy is we're going to need to offer more part-time contract or flex roles instead of full-time. More people want that balance. It used to be just, you know, uh, women in the workplace and like they need to take care of the kids or whatever it is. But I think men are finding themselves in that same boat increasingly. And companies can get the benefit of a lot of great talent without having to offer full-time. And full-time is tempting for the company. I get why companies want it because they own you. They own your time. You have to do this even if you have to do it till 11 p.m. because it's due the next day. If you're a contractor, you don't have that same level of loyalty and dependency. Companies want dependency and loyalty, but I think they're going to have to meet them in the middle. And for the moment, at least, we have this tight labor market. It's an opportunity to try those things if you're a company. And if you're an individual, you don't have a lot of power to do that. But but if you have some savings and you have the capacity or, or maybe the connections to convince someone to hire you that way, give it a shot. I have fallen in love. And I think you, my loyal fans and followers, should know first. I have fallen in love with Adam Newman, the former CEO of WeWork. Remember, WeWork turned out to be a huge disaster. They were going to go public. In this filing, they almost deified Adam Newman, you know, like dear leader. It was was almost like reading about uh, Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-il. This guy was a Svengali-like figure in this company. In a way, it was genius. He walked away or ended up getting bounced and the the public offering ended up uh, getting delayed. He walked away with two billion dollars from this company that he sold to everyone as a tech company had nothing to do with tech he was just re-renting real estate so he took big places with big leases and made them into small places with short leases it's really simple and there were other companies that were doing this at the time but they weren't valued anywhere near what they were and i i finally read this book uh, called the cult of we and when i say read <laughs> i don't actually read anymore i listen to audiobooks and even then i don't get to as many as i'd like he created something called the reality distortion field. This is something that Bill Clinton does, that uh, Steve Jobs used to do. It's like Dr. Strange from the Avengers. Bill Clinton, for example, every woman who's ever met him has talked about this, how when you meet him, he makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. Even if the room is filled with other people trying to meet him and he's had to go through hundreds of others, for that moment, you are special. And if you're attractive, 
you are naked because that's the power he's got. That That's what Bill Clinton does to, to people and women especially. Steve Jobs had that same kind of power. It's almost a way of hypnotizing people to believe in what you're saying because you believe in it so much. It's cult-like. And that's why the book was called Cult of We. So in reading this book, I, I can't recommend it enough. It was written by, I think, two Wall Street Journal reporters. It really goes through the story of, of how this guy convinced all these sophisticated investors to even question their own judgment. They're like, maybe this is a tech company. I'm like, there's no tech, it's building. Didn't matter. The guy was brilliant and I think he deserves every penny of his $2 billion. He didn't steal it from individuals. He didn't take it. He provided a service that people wanted. It's all these greedy f***ers who wanted to milk the opportunity and, and get as much value out of WeWork as possible. These are all sophisticated investors. I have no sympathy for them whatsoever. And, you know, is he worth $2 billion? In a sane world, no. But this guy was so good at it. Why not? If Bill Clinton could have $2 billion from the Clinton Initiative and whatever else he pretends to be doing, then so can Adam Newman. I I'm all for it. Take the money, Adam. Take it. Take it and run. And the other thing, that interesting side point, he's married to Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin. So she kind of played a big role in this sort of Svengali-like thing because she kept trying to introduce, he put her in charge of some stuff and she kept trying to introduce goop type stuff, all the bullshit Gwyneth Paltrow sells into the organization, like all this, you know, like wellness, yoga, whatever, some like nouveau school for kids, super expensive. Anyway, uh, really worth the read. I've been keeping a thread on Twitter. I'm calling it the traumatized startup employee thread. So there's a new article about a woman, April Co who started a mental health startup called, uh, what is it called? She was like a 29-year-old. She started it in Brooklyn, New York, of course, Spring Health. So now there's an expose in Business Insider. All of these employees couldn't handle the pressure and there was mentally taxing. There was a luggage company called Away that had the same kind of thing. Pinterest had something similar. Reddit a few years ago. There is... A huge mismatch between what these startups are promising and what these millennials want to believe about work. They think they're going to find themselves in this work. You're not. It's still just a job. And so to have this idea that you're going to save the world, even in a mental health startup, is unrealistic. You can enjoy the product, but at the end of the day, the work is not that different from, or the substance of the work is not that different from other companies. Maybe you believe in the mission more, but if you're working in a startup, you're going to work like a dog because it is hard. Same thing in finance, same thing in all these places. If you want those shares, especially if you're an early employee or you're in finance, you are going to be worked so hard. And I don't think a lot of the people that they hire who are fresh out of college or maybe a couple years out of college realize what hard work is and how little autonomy you have and what being told what to do is like and what real deadlines are like and what investors investor expectations are like. You add to that the fact that this was a mental health oriented startup. So by its nature, it's going to attract a lot of people who identify with the subject matter. So already they're probably a little bit more fragile. Add that fragility to the mismatched expectations and the rigor of the startup world. And all of a sudden you've got a 
recipe for disaster. And that's exactly what happens. And there's going to be more traumatized startup employee stories. There's going to be tons of these exposés because that's the reality. If you're going to work at these companies, you have to be prepared to, to, to grind it out. I hate to say it. It's, it's just, it's hard. It is really hard to launch a company. Just, it's hard to have an idea that works. Why do you think giant corporations stick to the same thing over and over? I remember I was hosting the product form at MasterCard, including the CMO and like some of the other heads of the company. I had my own questions and then there were questions that people submitted. So one of the questions that was submitted was about the priceless campaign. This was the jewel in the crown of the chief marketing officer. But by then, even though there was no YouTube yet, people were already making like viral parodies of priceless commercials. So it was already sort of jumping the shark, but the CMO was extremely proud of it. And so I asked, how long do you think you're going to stay with the priceless campaign? And he was not having any of it. This, he's like, there's so much life in this campaign. We're staying with it forever. The answer was forever. And he was insulted by the question. It is so hard to find one idea that works, whether it's in marketing and advertising, startups, or any kind of product or a podcast or anything else, that once you find it, you cling to it. Like your, your nail marks are in it, in, inside the flesh, they're digging in. And so that's why corporations stick to these things. And that's why a lot of their products and services are just iterations of the same thing. Fruity pebbles, we have cocoa pebbles. Oh, now we're gonna make, you know, Know, like keto pebbles. <laughs> so, you know, you just adapt whatever the current thing is and you bolt it on and hope uh, to, to what you have and hope for the best. That's why startups, so many of them fail and corporations can never be startups because they can't deal with that risk tolerance. They can't deal with the hundred to one or thousand to one ratio. So when you are in a company that actually managed to get uh, VC funding and create a product or service that people want, you are going to go through hell trying to have it survive in the marketplace because everyone else is noticing and they're going to want to compete. So now you've attracted all these other companies and the big ones are going to try to imitate you or maybe buy you, but you have to be successful and you have to keep grinding it out. Anyway, that's the reality. It's never going to change. So deal with it. Starting today, the punishment for anyone who's been canceled on social media is to spend a hundred hours on Clubhouse with the third Weinstein brother, Shmuel. Whenever Brett or Eric go on a podcast, they're like, it's Weinstein. And I'm like, you're working really hard <laughs> to not be a Weinstein. And I get it. That's not a great name. But also there's like a bit of a de-Jewification happening there. I'm like, embrace it. You're a Weinstein. Nothing wrong with that. But these guys could not possibly want to fight their Jewishness anymore. So I thought it would be kind of funny if there's another brother who's super Jewish, who just won't stop telling you about Moses and the Torah and the Chumash and the Gomorrah, all the great, uh, all the great stories. And also just a, a point about Clubhouse. Clubhouse is dead. You know, people had to go back to their jobs and they realized, oh wait, I, I can't just sit listening to virtual panels of people trying to sell me how to get rich quick schemes. And there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm going to be a Clubhouse influencer. That platform is dead. And there's a new one called Call-In, which I think is a little bit more interesting because it's trying to 
take that live aspect and turn that into podcasts. So you could listen live, but also convert it into a traditional podcast. And I also realized why I didn't like Clubhouse. I installed it for a grand total of 18 minutes. I put it on my phone. I went in. I saw just people rambling on about garbage. And I was like, okay, this isn't for me. First of all, they're all talking at one speed and I listened to all my podcasts at one and a half speed. So it already it was a, a non-starter for me. The reason I hated Clubhouse is the same reason I hated panel discussions at events. Usually it's a hodgepodge of stuff. Usually there's like one person you actually want to hear from who's really interesting and has a strong point of view. And they're diluted by these other three losers who've got nothing to say, but have to say, because they're on a panel. I'd rather roll the dice on one speaker with one cohesive vision being a dud than three or four people up on a panel and then just diluting everybody. It reminds me a little bit of improv. Improv could be great when you hit on something, but a lot of times it's crap. And I have done improv. I've seen many, many improv shows. Just a little bit of preparation, a little bit of writing can take this stuff through the roof. It could be amazing, but they never do it. It's maybe... 20% funny, another 20% that's kind of okay, mixed bag, and then the rest, not so great. You know, that's why I prefer stand-up comedy because it's a performance, but it's also well thought out and well crafted, and there's something to that. I recently saw a photo of an author at the bookstore with themselves next to their book on the shelf. And they're like, oh, look what I ran into, my own book. <laughs> For all I know, they just ran into a bookstore with their own book, put it on the shelf, and took a picture. I suspect the only people still going to bookstores are authors to take pictures of themselves with their books. So if I were a bookstore, there's so many books that are being printed. I would offer that as a service. I would install cameras all over the place. It would be like a whole workflow. The author comes in and they're, they're like, listen, I wrote blah, 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 book. And they're like, oh, it's in this section. So they just hit a button that lights up where that section is, activates the camera and takes your photo from multiple different angles. And then you can and share it on social media and you get all of the validation that is necessary. I remember at least at some point, Barnes & Noble sort of became a coffee shop. They started serving coffee and then you sat there staining all their books, you know, like spilling stuff, reading them for free and never buying anything. So all their profit just became coffee. And now who's sitting in coffee shops, especially with COVID, especially in cities where all the people who are most afraid of COVID seem to be? This is a great service and bookstores, if you want want to stay in business, that is your solution. So GoFundMe, which has replaced healthcare in this country, whenever somebody gets wounded and they open up a GoFundMe or someone opens a fraudulent one on their behalf to collect a bunch of money, you know, you go on there, it's all just, you know, sad stories of people and their limbs getting <laughs> removed or, or planned to be removed and having no healthcare. It's really, it's, it's the saddest and most perverse thing you could imagine. I, I laugh at it only because it's so absurd that this is our healthcare system. And they, as an organization supported a group called Riot Kitchen, which gave logistical support for rioters in Kenosha. And they actually donated as a company $500 to this group. Companies that get this radical and this political are just hammering the self-destruct button. They're going to attract a kind of person 
that they'll have to entertain all of their political whims, all of their activism, and that will destroy the company from within. And if you want to check out a more in-depth assessment of this, go to the Basecamp episode I did. I did a whole case study on this. And it just keeps happening because these companies don't realize how cancerous politics can be. There are customers who will never be happy. There are people who will never be happy. And to the extent that you can, it's best to create offers, products, or services that are designed in a way to avoid those losers <laughs> because they will drag you down. I worked in, in payments for a very long time and we would have these points, hounds. They would find a way to you know sign up for all these cards to get the sign-on offer and then they would manipulate the points and move them around. And these were the least profitable customers, but they kind of look loyal in some ways because they're spending a lot, but they're not really loyal. They're just milking whatever reward uh, system that's been put out there. So, you know, people will always do that. That's human nature. But there's a particular kind of customer that will always do that, that will never be happy. They'll never be happy with whatever it is that you do. So it's best to create things that don't attract those people. So a good example is people recommend offer like a free download of something or a free iPad for people to come to your website or subscribe to your newsletter. That is the dumbest thing ever because those are low value people. They're not interested in your ideas. They're not interested in your product. They're not interested in anything except winning an iPad. That is the lowest value kind of person. And eventually those people won't even open your emails. And then when your open rate goes down, your stuff starts going to spam, even for people who might be interested, who were real customers. It's really important to structure your life and your business in a way to avoid those people. And, and you know who they are. You've seen them in your life. They're always complaining. They're always finding something wrong. You need to throw them into a dumpster. Just let them know you've been listening and you're not happy. That's it for today. Please share this with others. Review the show on iTunes really helps with visibility. <laughs> it especially helps if it's a five-star review. And if you can, support it on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash McFuture. There will be a brand new set of rants on crypto waiting and ready to embrace you, love you, and so much more that I can't do on this main show because of, you know, legal reasons and various Cuomo-isms. <laughs> All right. See you next week on The McFuture.